Our sermon this morning is from Psalm 112. Turn to Psalm 112 in your Bibles if you have them with you. If not, you can follow along on the screen or even better, grab a pew Bible uh, in the chair in front of you. Turn to Psalm 112. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 477. So turn there with me. We looked at Psalm 111 last week. Uh, and we'll look at Psalm 112 this week. Together they kind of form a, a couplet, uh, kind of a, a dyad as it were. Um, and we can tell that they kind of form that because they structurally are built together. They form an acrostic together. So if you take Psalm 111, Psalm 112, put them together and look at the first letter of every verse between those two psalms collectively, uh, it forms the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, so they were kind of written together to, to um, you know, be one unit. And we can also see some uh, the, a, a flow, a narrative flow, a thematic flow from Psalm 111 to 112. Psalm 111 is all about God. We looked at that last week. The glory of God, the person of God, the character of God, the attributes of God, right? Who God is and what he has done for us, how God has treated for us, what he's done in our lives. That's Psalm 111 is all about God. Psalm 112, we'll see today, is all about the person of God, the man, the woman, the person who trusts in God and fears God and walks with God and, and delights in the commandments of God. So it's, it's really a, a look at the Christian life and, and what, you know, what we can expect our life to look like, what, um, experiences we might expect in our lives. Uh, that's Psalm 112, the person who trusts God, God and then the man of God. Uh, and so in large part, the sermon this morning is just kind of a, a look at a consideration of a survey of the Christian life, right? And who we are as people who trust in Christ, uh, what, what things are or should be true of us as people who trust in Christ, uh, what our lives might look like or what we should uh, aspire for our lives to, to look like. So that's where we're headed this morning with Psalm 112. I'm going to read it. And then we will just take some time and unpack it and consider it together and meditate on it together. It reads, bless, or it reads, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, I pray for these next few minutes as we study your word, consider your word. I pray that you would meet us here. Lord, our hearts are busy. Our minds are busy. We pray that you would uh, give us peace and stillness and a quiet heart. 
so that we could focus on you and on your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin. Show us where we need to repent. I pray that you would assure us of your grace and comfort us where we need uh, comfort. I pray that you would sanctify us and make us more like, like Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so he says it starts. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. It's a similar uh, start structurally to Psalm 111, which is yet another clue to help us know that they belong together. It's kind of like part A, intermission, part B. Um, and so he starts the same thing. Praise the Lord, directing our attention to God. And then where, whereas Psalm 111 kind of goes from praise the Lord into um, an explanation of who God is and, and uh, what we can know about him and see about him, this one kind of goes into the, the man of, of God, shifts its attention to the person who trusts in the Lord, and starts by saying he not only fears the Lord, but he greatly delights in the commandments of the Lord, which is... Uh, which is Profound, and, and it is not to be overlooked or missed, right? One elder here uh, shared um, that uh, obedience is God's love language, right? Uh, you know, there's, you read the book, five love, everyone has their own love language, how they like to have love shown to them, right? The best way you can love me is to spend time with me. Uh, you know, encourage me verbally, anticipate my needs and meet them, uh, give me a gift that shows me that you were thinking about me. Like there's, everyone kind of has a different way that they like to receive love. And so a big kind of a way that we can love other people well is to get to know them and, and get to find out how they like to receive love and then love them in that way. Well, God has a love language and his love language is not, uh, you know, it's not like lip service. Like I say, I love God. I tell other people that I love God. Um, his, his love language is not like a, an emotional state or feeling, you know, butterflies. If I'm in a, you know, if I'm in a service or witnessing a certain kind of preaching or music, right? God's love language is not, you know, lip service or emotion. It's, it's obedience. It's, it's following, it's delighting in and obeying and keeping God's, uh, commandments. You can't love him. You can't trust God. You can't fear God without keeping God's commandments. Jesus says the exact same thing in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, praise the Lord, uh, right? The, uh, the man who fears God, loves God, wants to walk with God, will uh, delight in God's commandments, follow his right. Not, not just uh, obey God's commandments out of obligation or, or because he has to, but he will actually delight in keeping God's commandments. He will rejoice and it will be uh, a blessing. The, the prospect of, of obeying God's commandments will be a, a blessing, something that he delights in. Um, that's what we see in verse 1. And then in two verses 2 and following, uh, we kind of see... Uh, a description of what this person who fears God and delights in the commandments of God, what he will look like. And uh, I, w- I would submit that there are uh, four main themes that we're going to see in various kind of, they each kind of keep popping up throughout the, the next nine verses. So I'm just going to work through those four themes, one after the other, and then we'll kind of see how the various verses uh, kind of fit into them uh, in, in various ways. 
So the first uh, main theme that we see in Psalm 112 is that the person who fears the Lord and walks in obedience to his word will be blessed by God. The person who uh, fears the Lord, walks in obedience to his word, will be blessed by God. And we see that uh, primarily in verses 2 and 3, right? His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. If you fear God, if you walk with God, right? There's a reasonable expectation that you will experience the blessing of God. Offspring, you know, that's strong and healthy. Um, wealth, riches, right? Because God is a father. He's a good father. He loves his children. He loves to give good things to his children. He loves to bless his children, take care of his children. God is not malevolent or vindictive. He's not a sadist, right? God is a good father and he would, he loves and delights to treat his children as we would expect a good, kind, gracious father to treat his children. Now, if you know your Bible, and if you kind of know the landscape of contemporary American Christianity, you might read verses like these, and it, you know, like sets off alarm bells, right? Like, you know, because it sounds a little bit reminiscent of prosperity theology, right? Uh, prosperity theology, just a quick overview, it kind of was birthed in America in the last century, in the 20th century, it basically says, you know, right, you, you are a winner. You are an overcomer, right? You think positive thoughts. You deserve to be blessed. God's going to bless you. The, 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 the overwhelming idea is that like, Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, sure. But Jesus also died on the cross to save you from your poverty, your ailments, your sickness, right? He died to secure forgiveness for you, but he also died to secure a victorious life of prosperity and comfort. And so if you think enough positive thoughts and stop believing the lies of the devil, right? Who said, the devil says you're destined to be broke and poor and sick. And so you have to stop believing that and start believing that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, right? If you visualize the life that you want, if you name it and claim it, then, then you know, right, if you, you know, call the number on your screen, give us your credit card number, God's going to rain down blessings on you tenfold, a hundredfold more than what you, you know, give to, to us. That's kind of prosperity theology, and it's, uh, I hate it. I loathe it, prosperity theology, and I'm convinced that God hates it. I'm convinced that God despises this idea that, uh, you know, you are a, a, a victor. You, like, you deserve the life that you want, the comfort that you want. I would, I would contend that prosperity theology is idolatry, which the Bible repeatedly kind of, uh, you know, decries as more or less the worst sin there is, or uh, the, the foundational sin that lies underneath all other sin, right? Moses gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus. First one says, I am the Lord your God. Don't worship any gods other than me. The second one says, don't have any images of any other gods. Don't worship any idols, right? The, the foundation of God's command, right? Some theologians have said, you can't break any of the other commands of God, right? The, the other eight of the other Ten Commandments or any of the other commandments in the Old Testament without first breaking those first two, right? Idolatry is kind of uh, the, the worst sin and the foundational sin. Paul 
describes idolatry uh, in, in Romans chapter 1 uh, and, and, you know, decries it as well. He says that the glory of God can be clearly seen and perceived by humanity. Right? Instead of worshiping God and honoring God, they've exchanged the immortal, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Right? The essence of sin, according to Paul, is, is seeing the glory of God that we're called to worship, we're called to, to, you know, ascribe to it our glory and our praise, but then to decide to worship something else someone else instead of God. That's what sin is at its very heart. So the Bible decries idolatry from start to finish. And again, the, and so prosperity theology is essentially saying, uh, God, God is great, right? God, God's awesome. No, no argument there. But, uh, but God exists primarily to give you something that you want, something that you feel that you need that's not God, right? Your biggest problem is not your sin and separation from God and the wrath of God. Your biggest problem is that your life doesn't look the way you want it to look. You don't have as much money as you'd like to have. You're, you're sick. You're not as healthy as you'd like to be. And since your biggest problem is not sin and wrath, but it's that your life doesn't look the way you want it to look, then Jesus died to, to solve that problem, right? To give you health, wealth, prosperity. The catch is, right, if, if you ascribe to that, then the thing that you're believing in, hoping for, aspiring to, and ultimately worshiping is not God, it's all of that stuff, Right? It's, it's a clean bill of health. It's, it's material possessions and prosperity is essentially what you're hoping in, longing for, aspiring to, and ultimately worshiping. And so I would contend that God hates prosperity theology because it's idolatry. It's saying, uh, that there is some, there's something else, right? God rightly belongs on the throne over the universe, the throne in my heart. I'm going to take him off of it and I'm going to put something else on in its place. Money, comfort, possessions. The people who teach prosperity theology are exploiting people, right? Often people that are poor or elderly, right? They're, you know, getting people to sign over their Social security checks or their reverse mortgage checks so that, you know, they can kind of become, become rich. And so, so, um, prosperity theology, I would, would contend is, uh, idolatry. It, it causes us and it kind of encourages us to worship something other than God. God becomes this, uh, this vending machine, this genie who exists to give me what I want. And so obviously that, that is, that's counter to all of what we see in scriptures. That can't be what's being taught in verses two, uh, and, and three. This can't be, uh, the psalmist encouraging us to, to see God as a means to an end who's going to give me health and wealth and offspring and riches and all, and, and blessing. So we're kind of left with the question, how, what, what are we to make of these two verses? How are we to understand them in the context of the Christian life that we're living today? There's a few thoughts. Um, first, Psalm 112 is called a wisdom psalm. There's about a dozen of them or so uh, throughout the Psalter. And they're called wisdom psalms because they look a lot like wisdom literature that we see elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, most notably Proverbs, the very next book of the, of the Bible. 
the Proverbs kind of have a certain, they have a certain role, a certain uh, task that they're intended to accomplish in Scripture. They're a collection of wise sayings about what it means to live a life of wisdom and godliness and kind of general truths about how a person might expect their life to look if they pursue wisdom and godliness. So Proverbs and the, Pro- the, the wisdom psalms like this one have a lot of sweeping statements that are, that are less intended to be, you know, binding promises, but are rather meant to be taken as, as general principles. So Proverbs, all, you know, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom and seek it, you'll be delivered from evil and darkness. If you, uh, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. I mean, all of these are general truths that are intended to encourage the people of God to be faithful and wise and diligent and godly, and kind of encouraging us that if we do, uh, there's a general, uh, you know, there's a general principle that we will experience these rewards and these benefits, but they're not binding promises because we know all too well from experience, and we see elsewhere in the Bible that there are people that work hard, and uh, they don't receive this great reward. There are people who train up their children and disciple them well, and their children uh, depart from the faith, or they walk away from, from the Lord. So Proverbs and the Wisdom Psalms have, uh, you know, general truths, principles that are generally true, but not promises that are always true. So, that's, so we kind of start by acknowledging that about this psalm. And then with that in view, we can kind of read this psalm and think, all right, what, what is, what are, what is Psalm 112 verses 2 to 3 saying to me, communicating to my heart, to my soul? It's probably not saying, God wants me to be happy, healthy, wealthy, God, right, God wants me to, God wants me to have more of the thing that I am idolatrously desiring and longing for and hoping for. Instead, Psalm 112, 2-3 should make us think, God is a good God who loves to bless His children, delights to give them good things. I'm not entitled to them. God doesn't owe me anything. Right? And, and ultimately, I recognize that the greatest gift that God could give me is not health or wealth or material prosperity. The greatest gift that God could give me is the gift of Himself, His presence, reconciliation to my Creator, right? That's the best blessing there is. And so I want to trust God and obey God and walk with God, not because of all the stuff that He can give me, but rather because I love God, right? I'm grateful to God for saving me. I'm grateful to God for treating me better than I deserve to be treated. And so I want to uh, experience His nearness and I want to obey Him so that I, that I can. God does not bless His people or yeah, God does bless his people. The person who trusts in God should have a reasonable expectation that he'll experience the blessing of God, but Christians are not entitled to material blessings or prosperity. What we are but but what we are promised to is infinitely better than material blessings and prosperity. What we are promised by God is that he will reconcile us to himself, be present with us, that we'll experience intimacy with God, that we'll know God, enjoy God. 
Right, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances in our life hold, good or bad, uh, enjoyment or suffering, we can know God and experience God and kind of enjoy the the wealth and riches uh, of the presence of God. That's kind of the, the deeper, more abiding promise that we see working its way out into the new covenant, and that that flows into the second theme that we see in Psalm 112. So if the first theme is uh, the, the man who fears God and delights in the commandments of God will experience the blessing of God, which is true, well then the second theme is that the man who fears God and delights in the commandments of God is going to suffer. And he's going to persevere through suffering by the grace of God. They're both true. The man who fears God will be blessed by God. The man who fears God will suffer and persevere. Both true, both declared unashamedly in this psalm, and we have to acknowledge both of them. We have to wrestle with both of them. We have to, we can't acknowledge one at the expense of the other. And so we can see suffering and perseverance through verses like, like verse four, right? Light dawns in the darkness for the upright who's gracious and merciful and, and righteous. Light, the light of the grace of God, the light of the provision of God shines into the darkness of the lives of the people. Light invades darkness. Grace invades, illumines, shines brightly in the darkness, which is great news and it's encouraging, but it presupposes seasons of darkness, experiences of, of darkness, right? Pain, suffering, illness. Death, persecution, betrayal, abandonment, hardship, depression, right? These dark things, dark seasons, dark experiences are not alien to the Christian life. We should not, uh, you know, consider them um, alien to the life that we expect to live. We should also hope and trust and pray that God will shine the light of His grace into our lives in the midst of them, right? When we're in pain, God would comfort us. When we're suffering, God would meet us there and be merciful to us. When we experience the death of a loved one, God would draw near to us and we can trust in His sovereignty. When we're betrayed or abandoned, that we could experience the nearness of Jesus who He Himself was betrayed and abandoned. Same theme of perseverance is down in verse 7. On the next slide, he says, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Well, that's great. I'm glad, God, that I don't have to be afraid of bad news. But this verse doesn't say that he'll never receive bad news. Or that bad news will never uh, be given to him. It just says that Christians need not fear. They don't need to be devastated by it. They don't need to live in constant perpetual anxiety that they might receive bad news. In fact, the, the thought that I don't need to be afraid of bad news kind of presupposes that I will, from time to time, receive bad news. I just don't need to be afraid of it. So when the phone rings, it's not always good news. Sometimes it's bad, right? When, uh, you know... Uh, opportunities come my way. Sometimes I don't, promotion, raise, whatever, right? Sometimes things don't work out for me. Sometimes uh, life is good. Sometimes life is, is bad. 
But Christians can persevere through it. They don't need to be afraid of bad news because their heart is not resting in. It's not bound up in the hope that I never receive bad news or I only ever receive good news. Our heart is resting in. It's, it's firm. It's trusting in the Lord, not in the prospect of never getting bad news. Same thing with verse 8, right? His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. This verse presupposes that the Christian will have adversaries. Darkness, bad news, adversaries. Psalm 112 is not some, you know, idealistic, you know, fairy tale that says your life will be perfect. Your children will always be strong and mighty. You'll always be rich and blessed and healthy and wealthy. It's saying suffering is real. You should expect to experience it. And when it does, you should expect to persevere through it because your heart is firm. Your heart is steady. You're trusting in the Lord, not in your circumstances. And so we have to hold both of those themes together in tension with one another, right? On the one hand, God is a good father. God wants to bless his children. He delights to give them good things. On the other hand, we're going to suffer. We're going to have to persevere through suffering by the grace of God as he preserves us through it. And they're both here and they're both true. And they're meant to kind of guard against either extreme, right? They're meant to guard against our erroneously sacrificing one on the altar of the other, right? If we, if we overemphasize verses two through three and we underemphasize verses uh, two and uh, verses four and seven and eight, then we fall into prosperity theology, right? God wants me to be happy, healthy, wealthy. I should expect I'm entitled to a life that's free of darkness and persecution and opposition and bad news. If I'm suffering, if you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's because you're not thinking positively enough. It's because you're not believing strongly enough that God will give you what you want. But if you overemphasize verses 4 and 7 and 8, and you underemphasize verses 2 and 3, if you, if you sacrifice the idea of God wanting to bless you on the altar of the idea that you are going to suffer, then you have kind of this, you know, poverty, like this martyr complex, this poverty theology. Woe is me. Everything in my life is terrible. And secretly, I kind of want it that way because that means that I can get sympathy from everyone around me. Right? Money is bad. Success is bad. Wealth. You're walking on eggshells careful to never accidentally enjoy anything in your life because you're convinced that God wants you to be miserable, because you're convinced that God is mean and not good, and he doesn't want you to enjoy things. The truth is, we as Christians need both. We need to recognize that God loves us, wants to bless us. Being blessed by God is not bad or sinful or immoral. And suffering is real. Going through, experiencing suffering and having to persevere through it is not bad or wrong or immoral. When God treats us better than we deserve to be treated, praise God. That's to be expected and enjoyed. When suffering and hardship befall us, when adversaries oppose us, we keep going. That's to be expected and endured. 
So neither one of those experiences, blessing or suffering, should be foreign to us. We should, we should have categories for both of them. We should never feel entitled to one or obligated to one over the other. So if we do, then it, then, then our faith becomes, right? If, if, if we feel entitled to one over the other, then our faith will be undermined as soon as our circumstances don't comport with what we want them to be. Right? If, if I, if I'm convinced that God wants me to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and then I get a cancer diagnosis, what do you, like, what do you, what do you do with that? I guess God just doesn't exist. If God does exist, he certainly can't be good, he certainly can't be sovereign, because I was under the impression that God was going to give me what I want, God was going to give me uh, the health that I thought that I should have. If my entire theological system is that money is God, health is God, my preferences are God, the person I call God is just a genie or a vending machine that's there to deliver to me the actual gods that I actually worship, my theological system says that I'm God, I should get whatever I want, the person that I call God really exists to serve me, make much of me, and give me what I want, then when I experience darkness, suffering, persecution, bad news, you punt the faith. God is not doing for me what I think He should be doing, or what I think He is obligated to do for me. So you walk through darkness... You have no category for a God who is sovereign over darkness or for a God who would allow you to suffer and you end up saying, God, how dare you? How Get get me out of this. Make this stop right now. If you don't, I'm not going to believe in you. If you don't, I'm not going to follow you. When instead what we should be saying is, God, help me to get through this. Draw near to me. Keep me near to you. Comfort me with your presence. Reassure me with your sovereign hand. Reassure me of your goodness and of the fact that your ways are better than mine. Your plan is better than than mine. Christians are called to persevere through suffering by the grace of God because they're called to recognize that their God that they declare, acknowledge, believe in, serve and worship, He is bigger than their suffering. His plan that is for their good is better than, and it is, um, it's, it's better than, and it is sovereign over their suffering. So the person who fears God and walks in obedience to His Word will be blessed by God. The person who fears God and walks in obedience to His Word will suffer, but will persevere through it by the grace of God. And then third, the person who trusts God, fears Him, delights in His commands, will love his neighbor in accordance with the commands of God. We see this in verse 4, right? Um, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. Here are three big, weighty adjectives that are intended to describe the person who trusts in God and... It shouldn't be lost on us that back in Psalm 111, they're the exact same three adjectives that were used to describe God Himself. Psalm 11, Psalm 111 verses 3 and 4. Say that God is merciful. God is gracious. God is righteous. So the psalmist is setting up this trajectory that says, 
Here's who God is. He's good. He's glorious. He's kind. He's merciful. And when people trust Him and when they fear Him, they will start to look like Him. They will start to reflect His glory. They will start to image Him. The attributes that are true of God will start to be true of them. They'll start to look more like Jesus. They'll embody His character. We also see it in verse 5, right? It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, right? The man who vertically trusts God, vertically uh, delights in God's commands, is going to horizontally love his neighbor, be generous with his neighbor, be kind to his neighbor. Same thing in verse 9. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. So when a Christian sees someone that's in need, they are willing to help, they are quick to help. Christian generosity will invariably take on any number of forms in the Christian life. Giving 10% or some other amount to your local church. Helping, right? Friend, family member, single mom, buying groceries for them, supporting a missionary, sponsoring a child from another country. Opening your home, inviting someone over for dinner. Christians should be ready and willing to be generous and to help others for any, for any number of reasons, right? First, because of the doctrine of the image of God, right? All people are made in God's image. They, they reflect God's glory. They have inherent dignity and worth and value and therefore, uh, they, they you know, um, they have uh, they they have a, a you know we should love them care for them and want to meet their needs right all male female white black brown all ethnicities nationality rich poor people who have more money than they'll ever need more money than they could ever spend people who don't have enough resources for the basic necessities of life all of those people are made in God's image all of those people reflect God's glory all of those people have inherent dignity and value and worth. And so being generous with what we have in order to bless and meet the needs of others is not foolish. It's not throwing money away. It's investing in people that God deeply cares about. So Christians should be generous because all people were made in God's image. Christians should be generous because money is not all that there is. Right? If this world were all that there was, and getting more money and getting more of the stuff that money buys were all that there is, then generosity would be kind of foolish. It'd be like, it'd be like playing a game of Monopoly and like when someone lands on your space, you're like, oh, don't like, you don't have to pay me that, you know, pay me the, or you, you know, you land on someone else's space and you give them the money that they're, but then you tip them, right? Like you give them more and you're like, That's, this is a game. The whole point of the game is to get more money. It doesn't make any sense to not try to get money or to give money in the context of a game in which the only point is to get more money, right? But because in Monopoly, money is all there is. If you were, if you were playing with like a, a billionaire, you're playing Monopoly with him and you're crushing him, right? You're like, it's just mayhem on the board for that guy. Just, you know, you own all the properties, you have all the houses and hotels, and he's about to lose, and you're about, and then he says, 
I will write you a check of real money. Like, I will give you a million dollars of real life money if you give me a million dollars of fake monopoly money. You'd be a fool not, like, it'd be foolish not to do that. Because monopoly, like, the monopoly, money is all that matters in monopoly, but monopoly only matters for the next 20 minutes, and then all of the monopoly money in the world is useless beyond that. So in the grand scheme of your life, monopoly money is not, not only is monopoly money not everything, in the grand scheme of your life, monopoly money is nothing. It's basically nothing. And that's how earthly money is in the context of eternity, right? Not only is earthly money not everything, in the context of eternity, it's basically nothing. And so, sure, by all means, get as much of it as you can. Enjoy it, right? Great, go for it. But use it for things that make your life better and leverage it to be generous and meet the needs of others, knowing that when you do, you're investing in eternity. You're trading something that you cannot keep to acquire something that you cannot lose. So Christians should be generous because all people are made in the image of God. Christians should be generous because money isn't everything. And one last one, uh, Christians should be generous because God has been generous with us. When God commands His people to be generous, give to their local church, meet to the needs of others, right? God is not commanding you to do anything that He Himself has not already done for you. Sure, right? Part with some of your income, Right? Hold on to your physical possessions with a slightly looser grip. Be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of other people. That's all fine. But do that all while considering and do that all in light of the, the, the reality of what Christ has done for you who left His throne in heaven. Right? Jesus left His like inter-Trinitarian comfort where He was residing with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity, Jesus became poor. He was a blue-collar carpenter. He was a homeless, itinerant preacher. He was arrested, condemned, crucified, gave His life for you. So when you consider being generous right, to your church or your neighbors or to people who are in need, do that while considering what Christ has done for you Right? Consider whether or not Jesus is asking too much of you in the context of considering what Jesus has done for you. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, Consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So God commands us to be generous. But no matter how generous we are, we can never be more generous with others than Christ himself has been with us. True, true, true Christians will be generous, and true Christians will, will love their neighbors. So, so the first three points that we've seen, uh, the person who fears God, delights in the commands of God, will be blessed by God. The person who fears God and delights in the commands of God will suffer but will persevere through it by the grace of God. The person who fears God and delights in his commands will love his neighbor. And then finally, the person who fears God and delights in the commands of God will be vindicated, right? Ultimately, when everything is said and done, that person will be vindicated and he will leave a a legacy of, of godliness.
We see this in verse 6, right? For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. So, so if you uh, live this godly life, you might be... You, you might not get the, the biggest short-term return on your investment that you, that you might, right? When you indulge in selfishness, when you exploit others for personal gain, when you give in to sinful impulses like pride or greed or bitterness, there's instant gratification, right? You get what you want right then in the moment. Godliness is the exact opposite. Godliness, uh, Godliness is the universe's get-rich-slow scheme, right? Like it, godliness, you don't get in-the-moment gratification. You do the right thing, maybe people don't know. Maybe they don't notice. Maybe they don't care. Maybe you lose out on cultural capital. Maybe you invite persecution, right? Right? You could cut corners and work in a way that nobody will know or notice or care. Maybe you'll have more impressive numbers. Maybe you'll rise through the company faster, right? If you uh, have an opportunity to engage in gossip or slander, but you refrain, maybe nobody knows. Maybe nobody cares. Oftentimes when you do the right thing, when you do the godly thing, you don't get credit for it. Sometimes your reputation suffers for it. And the psalmist is saying that that may be true now, but that doesn't last forever. When all the chips are down, when the dust settles, the godly person will have, less, will have left a legacy and he will be vindicated. Do the right thing. Keep your word when you have an opportunity to go back on it. It might cost you in the moment. Maybe no one will notice. Maybe no one will care. But you know who probably will notice is your kids who see you a lot. Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe your uh, character and your behavior over time, over years, is going to shape them and form them and affect them for the rest of their lives. If you watch your temper, watch your mouth, watch your language, maybe nobody notices, maybe no one cares, but chances are your kids will. And those patterns of godliness, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those patterns will emerge and they will shape them and they will form them. Even if your kids don't notice, right? Even if, uh, even if the, the, uh, the party who will remember you forever in verse 6 is not your children, though I suspect it will be, certainly who it does include is God Himself. He will notice, He will remember, and you will be vindicated by God Himself who knows you, sees your heart, and will not let your good deeds go unnoticed. As we see in verse 10 as well, right? The wicked man sees the, 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 the horn, the, right? The, the righteous man, his horn will be exalted in honor. So the righteous man will be vindicated and he will be, uh, you know, finally, like, he is going to get his comeuppance and the wicked man is going to see that and be angry. He's going to gnash his teeth and melt away as the desires of the wicked will perish. So for all of the things that the righteous man does that go unrewarded in this life, and for all of the times that the wicked man indulges in sin and walks away unscathed, in the moment the wicked man is laughing and celebrating, and the righteous man is left wondering if things are ever going to be made right. This is the exact theme of Psalm 73, which I put on the, on the slides here because it's, it's walking through the exact, uh, this exact reality. 
The psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're never in trouble. They're never stricken like everyone else. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them. They're, they're so, they, they overindulge so much that their eyes bulge out of their heads. Their heart overflows with folly. They scoff and speak. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against God in heaven. They say, how can God know? Is, does God in the, does the Most High have any knowledge at all? They're wicked. They're at ease. Their, their riches are always increasing, right? I keep my heart clean in vain. I am washing my hands uh, in innocence, and yet all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. That's what the psalmist says, right? I'm righteous and I'm suffering. They're wicked and they are thriving. What is up with that? But the second half of Psalm 73 embodies the same thing that we're seeing today in Psalm 112. He says, and then... I thought all of this until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. God, you make them fall to ruin. They are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. And yet I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and you'll receive me into glory. God, who have I in heaven but you? There is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh may fail, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart forever. Those who are far from you will perish. And you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The godly person may suffer in this life. They may not get what they what what is due to them in this life. The wicked person may thrive in this life. But this life is not all there is. There's a sovereign God in heaven who sees everything. There is an eternal life that stretches on into eternity. The godly person will be vindicated. The wicked person will receive their just punishment from God. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not even in this life. But it will happen. And when it does, when God finally balances the scales the way they're intended to be, the righteous person will be remembered forever. The wicked person will see it and be angry and gnash their teeth. Godliness might not win you any points in the short term, but it will be worth it because you'll leave a legacy that you will pass on to future generations because God is sovereign and God is just. So Psalm 111, Psalm 112, Go together, package deal. God is holy. God is glorious. God is splendid. God is transcendent. God is infinite. God is personal. God loves me. God cares for me. God is a good father. Right? God has given me grace through the person and work of Christ and his death on the cross for sin and his resurrection and victory over sin. God and the person of God. The person of God will be blessed by God. He will suffer, but will persevere through it by the grace of God. He will love his neighbor in accordance with the commands of God. And ultimately, he will be vindicated and will leave a lasting legacy of godliness. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for how we see you on display in it, in your glory and majesty and beauty. We thank you for the sufficiency of Jesus, our Savior, who died for us to satisfy the wrath of God. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you, fear you, and delight in your commands so that we might experience your blessing and persevere through suffering and love our neighbor and leave a godly legacy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.